0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use scripture as a mirror to reveal the plans that God has for us. We're in the book of Bamidbar, The Journeys in the Wilderness. This book contains within it the deepest, darkest parts of the human heart, our secret desires that we either like to hide and pretend that we don't suffer from, or alternatively, we seek to fulfill with laser focus, the human tendency towards lust and pride and desire for power, our three main driving forces, according to this book. And we have seen this repeatedly as we have explored the various narratives that have presented themselves in this book, And alongside the stories that reveal these tendencies, we have also seen each of these ideals that are revealed in the narratives addressed obliquely by Hashem in the legal and command portions of this book. Desire we saw called out in chapter 11 as the people called out for more than God was giving them. They wanted variety and finer foods than the bread that they were being given day after day. And on the surface, this doesn't seem like much but it's just the first step towards a complete and outright rebellion, because Hashem will not at this time simply give them more, and their flesh cries out for more. And in the throes of lust and desire, the people point to the other side of the fence and they compare their own grass to the grass that's there. No matter that the other side of the fence is filled with traps and mines and creatures of death and destruction, and this deep-seated lust for more, for wealth, for comfort, for variety, is addressed in chapter 15 as Hashem relates commands related to sacrifice. Hashem's short response to this preoccupation with desire is double-sided. Yes, you are doing without, but so am I. There is more that is required in the sacrifice that you're not doing yet because you simply don't have. I get it. And the corollary of this being, when you get to the end of this road, you will have all that you want. Just hold tight and practice patience. And we find in this that the attitude that combats lust and desire is patience. Now it might be easy to say, but contentment is the best way to fight lust. Just be happy with what you currently have. But contentment is an outpouring of patience. Without the knowledge that more awaits you, if you just wait long enough, it's way more difficult to be content with next to nothing. Even if that waiting lasts until the day you die, you will have all you could desire. Just hold on. Pride we witnessed reared its ugly head in chapter 12, as Aaron and Miriam, they slandered Moses, and then later in Korah as he attempted to elevate himself and all of the community to the same status as Moses in order to supplant him. This pride causing those who did legitimately have positions of power to seek even more power those who legitimately had honor seeking more honor seeking to be the one on top to lead to be recognized and famous and the way they do this requires that those on top be torn down denigrated and shamed and this deep-seated desire for honor and recognition is addressed in several places One being in chapter 15 in the giving of the tzitzit, as everyone is recognized as having honor and value and holiness in the community of Hashem. Simply being part of the community is a matter of honor. And the attitude that combats pride is called out directly in chapter 12 as well. Humility. True humility. And it is humility in God's sight that will lead to elevation to places of honor in His system. Seeking for pride will lead to downfall, but accepting that you are nothing, and the lowest of all, truly not just in word or out of false pretenses, leads to elevation. The last will truly be first, and the first will be last. And then power, the human desire to take control over the situation and to exert our will on the outside world, to be an authority and to lead others. To be able to change the world at a word and have others obey your desires and act to carry out your wishes. Power we saw reflected in chapter 13 in an interesting way. Israel, after witnessing the land for the first time, chooses to trust in their own power and they come to the conclusion that they are unable to carry out the conquest of the land under that power. They focus on their own numbers and their own military might and not on the power of God. Their preoccupation with their own power preventing them from achieving what he had promised to do in his power. And then there were some who fell into this trap of looking to their own power that had been granted and then seeking to raise themselves into greater power. Korah's band seeking to gain power over Israel so that they could return to Egypt. Perhaps they had designs of taking on a weakened Egypt and putting themselves into power there. That was a fight they could win with the power they had, especially now that God had destroyed the power, armies, and leadership of Egypt. Perhaps they expected to go back to Egypt and to throw themselves on the mercy of this new pharaoh, and those who led the rest back would be rewarded with their own positions of power in this new Egypt. What they intended to do once they returned to Egypt, we don't know. We only know they wanted to return. Regardless, these rebels sought power for themselves and they dismissed the power of God. And we find in the text that the counter to this idea of human power is the idea of faith. Discarding faith in our own power and our ability and placing all of our faith in the power and ability of Hashem. Trusting in His power, and that means trusting in His plans, even when the plan puts you up against those who look more powerful than you. Even when his plan leads you to a dead end. Even when his plans look to include certain death. Now, we've been through all of this before. We've examined each of these ideals and even compared them to other times in scriptures. When we see these three aspects of the human condition present themselves, we've even seen these three ideals represented in the temptation of Yeshua in the wilderness. And if you pay attention, you will find that David is presented with each of these temptations as well during his own wilderness experience. So why have I spent so much time on them once again this week? Because in the chapter that we're going to be examining this week, we find these ideals cropping up once again. We see several tribes of Israel looking around themselves through these lenses and coming to a conclusion that seems to work for them, a solution that appears to be okay with God and Moses. And yet, when we examine the history of these tribes long-term, it doesn't work out so well for them. So let's go ahead and read this week's Parsha, and as we do, pay attention to the request that the tribes bring to Moses, and see if you can spot these three ideals represented in the course of this chapter, and then let's examine just how this all fits into the overall narrative of the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 32 and the children of Reuvin and the children of Gad had much livestock, a large number. And they saw the land of Yaazer and the land of Gilad, and saw that the place was a place for livestock. So the children of Gad and the children of Reuvin came and spoke to Moshe and to Eleazar the priest, and to the elders of the congregation, saying, Atarot and Devon and Yaazer and Nimrah and Cheshbon and Elaleh and Sevam and Nebo and Beon. The land which Hashem has stricken before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, If we have found favor in your eyes, let this land be given to your servants as a possession, and do not let us pass over the Yarden. And Moshe said to the children of God and the children of Avon, Are your brothers to go into battle while you yourselves sit here? Now why do you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from passing over into the land which Hashem has given them? Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up into the wadi Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which Hashem had given them. Then the displeasure of Hashem burned on the day, and he swore an oath, saying, Not one of the men who came up from Mitzrayim from twenty years old and above is to see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, because they did not follow me completely.' Except Caleb, the son of Yaphunah the Kenizzite, and Yehoshua the son of Nun, for they have followed Hashem completely. So the displeasure of Hashem burned against Yisrael, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the eyes of Hashem was destroyed. And see, you have risen in your father's place, an increase of men, sinners, to add still more the burning displeasure of Hashem against Yisrael. For if you turn away from following him, he shall once again leave them in the wilderness, and you shall destroy all these people." Then they came near to him and said, Let us build sheep enclosures here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But let us ourselves be armed, hastening before the children of Israel, until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall dwell in the walled cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We shall not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we shall not inherit with them on the other side of the Arden and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Yarden. And Moshe said to them, If you make this promise, if you arm yourselves before Hashem for battle, and all your armed ones pass over the Yarden before Hashem until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land has been subdued before Hashem, then afterward you shall return and be guiltless before Hashem and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before Hashem. And if you do not do so, then see, you shall sin against Hashem, and know your sin is going to find you out. Build cities for your little ones and enclosures for your sheep, and do what you have promised. And the children of Gad and the children of Raven spoke to Moshe, saying, Your servants are going to do as my master commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all of our livestock are going to be there in the cities of Gilad. But your servants are passing over every armed one of the army before Hashem to battle, as my master says. And Moshe gave command concerning them to Elazar the priest, to Jehoshua son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moshe said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben pass over the yard and with you, every man armed for battle before Hashem, and the land has been subdued before you, and you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not pass over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, as Hashem has said to your servants, so we do. We ourselves are passing over armed before Hashem into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance remains with us beyond the Arden. So Moshe gave to the children of Gad and to the children of Raven, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh sons of Joseph the reign of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, and the reign of Og, king of Bashan, the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the land round about. And the children of Gad built Dabon, and Atrot, and Arawer, and Atrot, Shofam, and Yazer, and Yogvehah, and Beit Nimra, and Beit Haran, walled cities and enclosures for sheep. And the children of Reuven built Cheshbon, and Elela, and Kiryatayin, Nevo, and Baomeon. the names being changed, and Shivma. And they gave other names to the cities which they built. And the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilad, and took it, and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moshe gave Galad to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. And Yair, the son of Manasseh went and took its small towns and called them Chavot Yair. And And Novach went and took Kenat and its villages, and he called it Novach after his own name. The wilderness journey is not easy. The challenges of the wilderness push those who go through it to their limits. And then when we fail the initial tests of the wilderness, as we all do, with the exception of Yeshua, there is a time of rest, and then the test comes back again. The second time around, these tests they hit with greater intensity. Now it's not just a lack of variety of food, it's a lack of water and a lack of variety, and the need to walk away from the promise and to take a longer path than was initially thought. Added to this, the temptation will be ramped up. Now, not just the opportunity for a variety of food. Just worship this other God. And you can have the food. Look, there's loose women, there's drink, there's party. Let yourself go. You've done without for so long. Treat yourself to the finer things of life. And this trap is the easiest one to spot as the tests ramp up the test of desire and comfort. But that doesn't make it any easier to overcome because our flesh cries out for these things. The desire for comfort and variety is deep-seated. Then there's the matter of pride and the false humility that seeks to take its place. Thoughts of, I have suffered so long, and I've been faithful since the initial rounds of tests. I've done what was required. Now I've learned and I'm good to go. Look at me, everyone. I'm being tested and I'm passing. I'm making it now because of my suffering. I am a servant of the Most High God. He has granted me power and authority because of my service and my humility before Him. I am lowly and can only say and do the things that He tells me to do. But in my humility He has granted me power. Shall I curse this people who stand against you with this power? Shall I leverage this power for my own personal gain? Shall I make water come from this rock for you, you who have not yet learned humility, and you who continue to rebel against God and against me? False humility is so easy to fall into, especially on the backside of the wilderness experience, after being truly humiliated. It's so deceptive that even Moses fell into a sense of false humility, if only for a moment. And wrapped up in this test is the test of power. Take it for yourself. Take control of the situation. Enforce your will on your surroundings and on those around you. Strike your donkey and force her to obey you. Curse the enemies of Moab and Midian and you will be granted power in the physical, not just in the spiritual. Strike the rock so that the water will flow. Demonstrate your power to those under you. Perhaps then they will see and understand and obey you. We have seen all of this as Israel has begun their journey to leave the wilderness and as they have made their way to the east side of the Jordan. The same tests as before, but this time with people who should have learned. But mixed in all of this, there are successes, victories that were unseen before. Great kings are destroyed, their lands taken, their goods plundered. Men taking up their positions of power and acting in zeal and honor And righteousness and truth. But the wilderness journey takes its toll. Despite all of this, the temptation comes. The desire still entices. The pride still seeps in. The power still exerts control. And the temptation arises. One that I am intimately familiar with. Isn't here good enough? The place where I am now has all that I need to live. I just want to stop and rest. I have these goods, and this this land, this place, is suited perfectly to this lifestyle. How could I ever get on top of my finances while wandering and spending every dollar just to survive? I could just simply settle here. I could settle for a place of my own choosing. I don't have to wait for the conquest to end at some future undeterminable date. I don't have to wait for the land to be divvied up. I can take this land that suits me just fine. I can settle my family and my goods now because I am done with the wilderness. I simply want a place to call home. And this is what we hear from the mouths of the leaders of the tribes of Reuben and Gad. As this chapter opens, we read of the elders of these tribes looking to the land that surrounds them, and they see that it will serve their needs. They have a lot of livestock, and this land is perfectly suited for livestock. In the ancient Near East, cattle and livestock, they were riches. Cattle meant wealth. Perhaps it is that these tribes saw an opportunity to get a head start on investing in the future before their brothers. A way to increase wealth even to provide for their brothers while they fought. Perhaps they looked at what they knew of the land of Canaan, and they could not find a place that suited their particular needs. The south, okay, maybe the south is okay for grazing sheep, but that's a difficult prospect because it's primarily desert. And the other areas of the land, well, they are suited for farming, but not really suited to grazing large amounts of cattle. Perhaps they looked at the size of the land beyond the Jordan to the sea, And they thought that it was just too small. We'll get much more space if we simply settle out here. We can stretch out and not be bound in by rivers and mountains and deserts. Reuben and Gad looked at their wealth. They looked at the land of Canaan, and they found that their wealth and the promised land were incompatible. And we see here what Yeshua is recorded as saying in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 19.24 Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. All throughout the Torah, we see the promised land steeped as a symbol that represents the kingdom of God. And here we see the statement of Yeshua in practice. The wealth of Reuben and Gad prevented them from reaching the promised land. They settled early and did not continue to strive for all that God had for them. It was their wealth that led them to make this decision. And though they fought for it, they never got a piece of it. And as we see, there is more going on in their motivations than simply the possession of great wealth. But it is the wealth that is the driving force of their request. In the request in verse 3-5, through they only mention their wealth and how compatible this land here on this side of the Jordan is with their wealth. They only make mention of Hashem once in their request as they acknowledge that Hashem has cleared this land of its inhabitants, but their request is not based on what Hashem seeks for his people or the promises that Hashem has made. And this is made clear in Moses' initial response to these tribes. In his response, Moses mentions Hashem seven times, and his response is based fully on what has happened in the past and on what Hashem wants and the plans that Hashem has for Israel. In his response, it goes something like this. Why would you ask this? If you do this, you're going to discourage the rest of the people. All it took last time was ten spies acting out of fear and refusing to go into the land, and that fear spread and it caused the rest of the nation to be delayed forty years. No one who did that reached the land. They all died out here in the wilderness until those who had done that evil were destroyed. And now you would repeat the sin of the past. You would tempt your brothers with another land. You would tempt your brothers to settle here by your example. If you persist in this, God might just do again what he did last time. All of Israel may be forced to wait outside of the land until this generation is wiped out because of you. What happens when the rest of the tribes see what you're asking and they say, Wait, what? we can do that? We don't have to go any further. We don't have to fight anymore. We don't have to any anymore. We can settle here for this now. There is, after all, more land out here than there is on the other side of the Jordan. Why don't we just settle here? We can settle for a little less, can't we? We don't need to take on the giants. Do we really need all that that land offers? And while Reuben and Gad focused on themselves in this request, Moses' response takes into account the whole community. Don't do this for your brother's sake. Do you see this difference as presented here? The tribes of Reuben and Gad were concerned about their own well-being. They were concerned about their own profit. But Moses' response is based solely on the good of all. The good of all Israel, not the good of one small cross-section of Israel. Again, we find here a counterexample of what is expected of the people of God that is spelled out clearly in the New Testament. Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Doing nothing at all through selfishness or self-conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each one should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Reuben and Gad were concerned about building their own kingdoms and not about building the kingdom of God. And in doing so, they endangered the entire nation. And so when Moses calls them out on this, they make a counter offer. Okay, okay, we get what you're saying. So how about we do this? Let's go and build pens for our cattle and, well, you know, cities for our children. Notice the order here. The order of what they offer reveals a bit of where their priorities are. Let's build pens to keep our wealth safe. Oh, and and while we're at it, let's build some cities to keep our children safe as well. You know, this request, it isn't really about the children at all. Think of the children being the cry on their lips, as it is so often even today. We don't want them to have to continue to suffer and to live in these conditions. We could give them a better life now, not five or six years down the line. But they've played their hand. Their concern is not for their children. We've seen it from the initial request. Their concern is truly for their wealth. They add their children in here as a type of one-up that's so common in ancient Near East haggling practices. When providing a counter-offer, always add something to the offer as a means of heightening the stakes of the author. And raising the stakes they do because they don't just add the bit about, well, think of the children... But they also then offer up something that, frankly, is a bit irresistible. Just let us do this, and we will go before the people of Israel to fight in the land for their good. Just let us keep our goods safe. Oh, oh yeah, and our kids too. Let us keep them safe and, and get them back to a semblance of normal life. Once again, in their offer, they do not mention the name of Hashem, or call on His character or will. All, They use human reasoning based on human senses and human logic. But in Moses' response, he makes it all about Hashem. If you do this and do all of these things before Hashem, arm yourselves before Hashem, pass over the Jordan before Hashem, until the land is subdued before Hashem, you shall be guiltless before Hashem, you shall have this land as your possession before Hashem. Five times Moses uses the phrase before Hashem. These five things are the terms of the agreement that Moses is willing to agree to. If they do not do all of these things, if they fail in just one aspect of this agreement, then it will be sin before Hashem. And no, your sin will find you out. And then Moses finishes by trying to get them to get their priorities in order. So go and build cities for your children. But know that your kids come before your riches. And build pens for your sheep. But be sure to keep your word. And the agreement is made. We will do this, they say. And then they do get their priorities straight in their final reply. And they add one more element to it. Our children and our wives and our flocks and our livestock are going to live in Gilead. But we are your servants. We will be the vanguard of your armies before Hashem, as you say. They agree, and they agree that this matter is being witnessed by Hashem. And so Moses tells his successor about this matter. He knows that he is not going to be there for this, and so it's necessary for them to know the terms of the agreement. And so both Elazar and Joshua are brought up to speed. Now it's not stated here, but this agreement would have also required a vow offering to be made, a sacrifice and a meal to be shared between all who were part of this agreement. And we also discover that the flow of this latter part of Numbers continues on through this chapter, because the last two chapters dealt with vows, being sure to do what you say you're going to do, and the legal rights of a husband to cancel the vows of his wife in a timely manner. And then we read a narrative of Hashem keeping His vows to go before the people to protect them in their battles. And now we read a narrative of several tribes placing themselves under a vow, one that they are clearly making before Hashem. And so it is one that they must be careful to fulfill the terms of. And in verse 33 we read something interesting. So Moses gave to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh the kingdoms of Sichon and Og, and all the land that surrounds them. So where did that half-tribe of Manasseh come from? This particular tribe has not been mentioned at all in this chapter up to this point. Why all of a sudden do we read of them here, only here at the end? Well, there are no details given as to why this half-tribe suddenly pops up in the agreement. What I see as the most likely probability is that this tribe, they heard of the agreement that these other tribes were making, and they decided that they wanted to be part of it. And what Moses had feared came true. The other tribes saw what was happening and decided that they wanted in on the land in the Transjordan. But because of the requirements that he placed on those who agreed to lead the armies and to leave their families behind for years on end while the war was being prosecuted, this potential hemorrhage of tribes from the land was kept to a minimum. Only half of a tribe decided to sign on to this agreement. And so, these tribes get busy. While everyone else is waiting on the shores of the Jordan and Shittim, these two and a half tribes begin building cities and planting themselves in the land on the east side of the Jordan. And a few of them go to war. Some of the sons of Manasseh, they wanted more land, so they had to go and clear several other cities for themselves. And these lands are given to them for their own inheritance. And this is where the Parsha ends. With some of Israel, even after everything that they have gone through, succumbing to the temptations of their fathers. And in doing so at this point, seeking of their own free will to stay out of the land. So did you spot them? Did you spot where these tribes succumbed to the temptations of the wilderness? Now sure, desire, it's easy to spot. These tribes, they seek to settle on the east side of the Jordan because they saw that the land on the east was desirable for settling. But the other two, they're a little bit more difficult to spot as they're not explicitly stated. They're contained in the subtext of the narrative as it's told here. In the area of pride, we have to examine exactly what pride entails. Now, according to Webster's definition that is pertinent to the discussion, pride is inordinate self-esteem. So this is thinking higher of oneself than is appropriate or necessary. And how is pride expressed? Well, there are many ways that pride expresses itself. Previously in chapter 12, we saw pride expressed in the action of tearing down those who were higher, bringing them down through shame by highlighting their weakest qualities, and then elevating self by highlighting the best qualities of self. In chapter 16, we saw pride expressed in a very similar way, the over-enhancement of good qualities accompanied by an accusation of pride against another. Both of these examples feature the tearing down of the target and the elevation of self. But pride can be acted out in other ways as well. In some cases, pride is expressed by seeking special treatment. Setting yourself apart from those around you and expecting others to give you what you feel you are owed. And when we see the initial request of these tribes, we discover that the request from the beginning was based in an attitude of pride, the desire to be set apart and different from all others who accompanied them. Now, when it comes to power, we have to go back a ways and consider the history of these tribes specifically the history of one of the tribes that is prominent in this request, the tribe of Reuben. Who was Reuben? Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. Reuben should have been the one destined to lead the family of Israel, and yet he was not given this honor. He was passed over. Why? Well, we discussed this several years ago, but it appears as though he attempted to seize power too early while Jacob still lived. After the death of Rachel, the favored wife of Jacob, Reuben saw an opening, a way to take over the family by heaping shame on his father's grief. And so Reuben slept with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid and mother of Dan and Naphtali, an ancient Near East attempt to claim the honor of authority of his father in the custom of the day. Reuben was destined to be in power over the family, and yet... Even then, it's likely that he saw the way that Jacob favored Rachel's son, Joseph. And so he did what he could to seize the power before it could be handed over to another. And his attempt failed. And it was because of this attempt that Jacob then has a legitimate reason to pass over Reuben when it comes time to bless his sons on his deathbed. And so Reuben received this blessing instead. In Genesis 49, 3-4. Reuben... You are my firstborn, my power, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of exaltation and the excellency of power. Here's that word twice. Boiling like water, you do not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben is the firstborn of the power of Israel and the beginning of his strength, destined to excel in honor and power and yet rejected from excelling before his brothers because of that incident with Bilha, And so the tribe of Reuben knows that they've been relegated to the back seat of history. And there appears to have been a bit of resentment in the tribe since then. Why do I say this? Well, who was it that backed Korah in his rebellion? It was sons of Reuben. Numbers 16, One and Korah the son of Yitshar, and son of Kahat, the son of Levi, took both Datan and Abiram the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. Korah, it seems, knew that there was resentment in the tribe of Reuben because other tribes were being put into power, and so Korah used that against Moses. This desire for power that should have belonged to Reuben, but didn't. Well, Reuben still desires power, it seems, but the tribe knows that they'll never have it as long as they're in the land with the others. And so they seize on the opportunity to be autonomous, to be out from under direct control of the rest of the nation. And yet in their agreement, they fulfilled the entirety of the blessing on Jacob's deathbed. They were the beginning of the power of Israel, the first to lead into battle. And Gad Well, Gad was the firstborn of Zilpah, the handmaid of Leah. Legally, Gad and Reuben, they were full brothers. Likely, there was a familial bond between these two tribes. There's also the possibility that there was a rivalry between this tribe and another. If you remember from Genesis 37, it was the sons of the concubines that Joseph brought this evil report to Jacob about. In the ancient Near East, grudges lasted generations. It's not just limited to the ancient Near East. It could be something as simple as Gad continuing with a grudge against Joseph. And in choosing to settle here, Gad fulfills his own blessing from his forefather. Genesis 49.19 Gad, a raiding band, raids him, and he raids its heel. And Manasseh, he was the firstborn of Joseph. And yet, Jacob blessed Ephraim as greater than Manasseh in Genesis 48. And we don't have any proof, but the kinship and inheritance aspect of these stories of the past do seem to be feeding this desire to settle apart from the rest of Israel, to seek autonomy in some ways from the government structures of Israel. And this fact is something that the members of these tribes, they easily recognized. There would come a day when these tribes in their land on the other side of the Jordan would forget their connection to the rest of Israel. And it is this that prompts these tribes then to build their own altar on the east side of the Jordan. And we read this account in Joshua 22. Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh built a giant replica altar, and the rest of Israel immediately suspects that they have succumbed to adultery, I mean, idolatry. And so a military force is sent to wipe out these tribes just after they had won their conquest. But before Israel can attack them, they send a delegation across the river to inquire these tribes to discover what's happening. And this is their reply. Joshua 22, 21-29 Then the children of Reuben and the children of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the divisions of Israel, El Elohim Hashem, El Elohim Hashem, He knows, and let Israel itself know. If this has been a rebellion, or if in trespass against Hashem, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following Hashem, or if to offer ascending offerings or grain offerings on it, or if to make sacrifices of peace offerings on it, let Hashem Himself require it. But truly from fear, for a reason we did this, saying, In time to come your sons might speak to our sons, saying, What have you to do with Hashem, God of Israel? For Hashem has made the yard and a border between you and us, you children of Reuben and children of Gad. You have no portion with Hashem. So your sons would make our sons stop fearing Hashem. So we said, Let us now prepare to build ourselves an altar, not for ascending offering nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between you and us and our generations after us, to do the service of Hashem before Him with our ascending offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, that your sons should not say to our sons in time to come, You have no portion with Hashem. So we said that it shall be, when they say this to us or to our generations in time to come, that we shall say, See the pattern of the altar of Hashem which our fathers made, though not for ascending offerings nor for sacrifices. It is a witness between you and us. Far be it from us to rebel against Hashem and turn from following Hashem this day, to build an altar for ascending offerings or grain offerings or for sacrifices beside the altar of Hashem, our God, which is before His dwelling place. These tribes recognized that over time there would come a disconnect between them and the rest of Israel. I suspect that they were kind of counting on this to happen. And while they desired autonomy of some sort, and desired to be separate in some ways, they also desired to continue to worship Hashem, and they knew that the place for worship of Hashem would be in the land. And so this altar was not functional, but it served as a witness for later generations of the fact of their connection to the tribes in Canaan. They did not wish to be entirely independent. And with this decision, these tribes get what they think they want, and they pass into the annals of history, because after the book of Judges, these tribes are barely mentioned at all. The only mention that they get is among the list of genealogies or in lists of all the tribes in places like Ezekiel 48 or Revelation 7 or 1 Chronicles. The only other mention of them is in the time of David, in first Chronicles twenty seven, they're listed as being among those that served the king as part of a twelve month rotation of service to the king of Israel. And then the end of their existence as tribes, as recorded in First Chronicles five. Chronicles five, sixteen through twenty six. And they dwelt in Gilad, in Bashan and in its villages, and in all the open lands of Sharon within their borders, All these were registered by genealogies in the days of Yotam, the king of Judah, and in the days of Yerobam, the king of Israel. The sons of Rehoboam and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh had 44,760 brave men. Men able to bear shield and sword, to shoot with the bow, skilled in battle, and going out to the army. And then skipping forward to verse 25. But they trespassed against the God of their fathers, and they whored after the mighty ones of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, the king of Assyria, even the spirit of tiglath pileser the king of Assyria. And he took the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh into exile and brought them to Chalach and Havor, and Hara and the river of Gozon unto this day. These tribes... This buffer between Israel and the nations was the first to fall. They were the first to succumb to idol worship and the first to be taken into exile. This boon that they sought, this desire to be set apart and semi-autonomous, this desire to protect and increase their riches apart from the promised land, led to their early downfall. And so let me encourage you. Let me encourage myself. When the way gets difficult and the solution and resolution seems so far off. When the trial gets too difficult. When the trail gets too long. When you're weary of the road and you simply want to settle down and be done with it all. And then the option comes. Satisfy your desires. Satisfy your pride. Exercise power on your own terms apart from your brothers, apart from the plan of Hashem. Simply step off the path because you are ready to settle. You're ready to reap your reward. Don't. Don't do it. In the immortal words of Admiral Akbar, it's a trap. Sure, you may be comfortable. Sure, you may find some sort of safety for your family. Sure, you may satisfy your desires and find pride in what your hands have built, but you will find that you will be more and more disconnected from others in the process. You will find that you are attacked first as you become the buffer for others. You will find that you may be the first to fall. Instead, remain steadfast, remain patient. Remain firm that the promise of God will serve you as well, even if you don't see it yet. You won't be kicked out of Israel if you succumb to this. You'll still be part of Israel with all your brothers. You will still have communion and fellowship with them. But your kingdom it will be your own. It will not be the kingdom that God is building. It will not be the blessing that God has promised. And in the end, you will regret it. So don't settle for less. Don't give up and put down roots outside of the promise that God has for you. Keep going. Keep pursuing. And the end result, the promise that we look forward to, is life abundantly. So, Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.